Nina Shocker. That was my way of saying hi. Oh. Why should I just say Layla Shafley? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So listen, let's just let the cat out of the bag before I do a regular intro. Dina is one of my best friends, guys. So yes, I will go into why she's extraordinary and why this will be a blast, but I'm super excited to have one of my best friends on the pod. Yay. I am so happy to be here too. And yeah, we go way, way back. I love Layla and I'm so honored to be a guest officially. Yes. And so Dina, how would you describe yourself? I would describe myself right now as very tired, <laughs> Same. but um, by way of introduction, I am a lot of things like you, an intersectional person. I am a Muslim American, uh, Iraqi American. I'm a mom, a daughter, sister. I'm a VC, which is short for venture capitalist. So I invest in private companies and help them grow and scale. Um, but I've been a lot of things in prior lives, including when you and I first met. You've seen me go through some career pivots um, in the last 10 plus years that we've known each other. So I've been a journalist. I've been in public service at the State Department. I worked at Google and, and then most recently Venture. So Well, that's why I love your career so much. And I'm so excited to get into it because, so you know, I'm a startup founder and in the startup founder world, the backgrounds are often pretty unique. It kind of takes, often it's not necessarily background by way of education or experience, but there are personality traits that get somebody to take this job on. And venture is similar where there's not one path to venture. Sure, maybe iBanking might get you there faster or selling your own company might get you there faster. But I love your career because you really show how you can really be flexible and get where you need to get and pick up the right experience along the way if you're interested in venture. Yeah, it's interesting because like I definitely did not anticipate this is where I would be when I was, you know, graduating college um, years ago, and I don't think I even really understood what venture was. And frankly, the industry has evolved and changed a lot too. For me, it was always kind of orienting around this north star of impact and thinking about kind of how I can do something in this world and and sort of what what would be the next step to get there, not necessarily a ten year plan. Um, it's funny. I actually just shared or uh, retweeted some something I read earlier today that was really funny. That was um, that you, especially, I think, given the fact that our dads, uh, for those listeners who don't know, went to medical school together in uh, Baghdad, aka Baghdad. This tweet was was basically making fun of you know somebody on a plane who was a VC who where there was an emergency situation and somebody needed to um, you know to have a doctor and essentially making light of the fact that as a VC, like, what are you going to do? Give an uncapped note, you know? <laughs> um, I bet on that guy. He could probably figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a family of doctors and I think that's such an honorable you know, way to have a direct impact uh, in someone's life. But uh, it wasn't for me as soon as I realized I needed to take organic chemistry. And so I went through these various diff different, you know, chapters and each one sort of led me to the next. And, and that's kind of how I I ended up where I am now. And it turns out that what I've always done my whole life is be a connector. Like that's what I love to do. That's what brings me joy. And that's really a big part of what being a VC is. So yeah, and let's get into it. So wh where did you grow up, Dina? I grew up in the Bay Area. So I'm a rare Bay Area native. Yeah. And and then what? Like, tell me about your journey in Bay Area, college, so on and so forth. 
Yeah. So, you know, my journey starts, um, you know, even before I was born with my parents coming from Iraq. Um, You know, my dad left in the 70s for his residency initially in New York and then fell in love with the Bay Area and ended up finishing at Stanford. And so that's kind of how my family settled into the Bay. And so, you know, I had a very lucky and privileged upbringing growing up in this beautiful place and, you know, having the resources of my, you know, hardworking parents. And I grew up with three brothers and I, uh, you know, all of them. And when I was thinking about kind of what I wanted to do, uh, as I mentioned, you know, one thing that I really felt like had a, a tremendous impact on my life, which I'm sure it did for, for many of our generation was, you know, September 11th and, and being uh, in high school when that happened. Uh, prior to that, like, you know, my name is sort of not necessarily descript, you know, couldn't, couldn't quite see by looking at me if I was Muslim or, or Arab or Iraqi. But after that, like, I felt like these parts of my identity that had heretofore been so fluid were ostensibly at odds with one another. And, you know, I knew that was not the case because that's the hybrid of who I am, but we all remember where we were when we, when we, when we heard about that. And so it got me really interested in kind of understanding the history of and the the contemporary Middle East in the context of, you know, international affairs. And that's what I went to, to, to study in college. And I, I went to Harvard. I studied social studies in Near Eastern languages and civilizations, which was quite a mouthful, and, and really thought I was going to go down this path of academia and, and kind of working on the, this narrative the, of the Middle East. So I went to grad school and, uh, you know, straight out of undergrad, I graduated in, in the summer of 2008, just a few months before that, you know, fateful um, collapse of Lehman Brothers and the, you know, the subsequent financial crisis. So it was really an interesting time. When I was graduating, almost half my class at Harvard was going into Wall Street or consulting. It was kind of like the thing to do if you wanted to make money and and have an ambitious career. And I definitely did not see myself going down that path. Again, I was always orienting around impact. And I had this sort of false dichotomy in my mind that it was either do well or do good, which I've come to realize over the years isn't necessarily the right way of thinking about it. But that's that's what led me to, to grad school and went to Georgetown. You and I had some fun visits in those in those <laughs> years when you came and stayed with me. And, um, you know, while I was in grad school, I was working as I did in undergrad because I paid for for both college and grad school on my own and was lucky enough to have jobs that were also really professionally enriching and amazing learning experiences. And so one of those, uh, as you may recall, was as a journalist. And that was sort of like vocational anthropology. And so I had this idea that like, maybe that's my calling. Maybe maybe it's not, you know, uh, the the tenured academic path, but actually like becoming the next Christian Amanpour. And little known fact, I was actually on air very briefly as the uh, anchor of a bilingual news show on an Arabia. One episode is, is as far as it got. I'd like to think it was because of the financial crisis and the show not getting funding, but it might have been that my Arabic just was not good enough for on air. So please don't ask me to do an interview in Fusha. That was really hard. <laughs> but anyway, that um, that was what eventually led me into public service was um, after that experience, I, I interned with the BBC and happened to be helping cover the Washington desk and the White House. And so was covering President Obama's speech in Cairo in 2009, which you know, many of us remember or know as the Cairo speech or uh, otherwise known as the New Beginning speech. And that was 
really a watershed moment in U.S., uh, Middle East or U.S. Muslim world relations where he called for a different way of doing development and diplomacy that was grounded in education and technology and entrepreneurship, a better way of building bridges. And I really wanted to actually be a part of that story, not just writing it. So that's how I ended up working for Obama. Yeah. And how long were you with the Obama? Um, how long were you with Obama? So uh, not like we were BFF. I wasn't with Obama per se, but I got, I did, I got a presidential management fellowship and um, I initially worked actually at USAID and then at the State Department. So it was about three years total and you know great learning experience. But a lot of things happened during that period of time, which eventually led me back to where I grew up in Silicon Valley, which is not, not at all the place that I thought I would be. Like when I was in, in elementary school, high school, especially, there really wasn't a lot to do here if you weren't an, an engineer, hardware or software, like, you know, chip engineer. If you had these global aspirations and ambitions, it was kind of hard to be in California, especially here. You know, certainly there were jobs like, you know, excellent jobs in healthcare and law, but not beyond that at the time. But when I was in the State Department, and, and I was witnessing, you know, as we all did, what was happening in the early days of the Arab Spring. And I was coming out here to the Bay a lot for work because I was, again, working on partnerships, public-private partnerships. I was witnessing the sort of center of gravity shifting out West, like both kind of literally and figuratively. And I was seeing technology no longer as this like separate esoteric sector, but actually a way of doing a lot of different things better and sometimes with more impact and sometimes with more equity. And and there was just an energy, like I just wanted to be here. And that was a tall order for somebody with a degree in social studies and Near Eastern languages and civilizations. Like there really wasn't, you know, the whole DC diaspora hadn't really come out here yet. Um, and I wanted to work in product. I didn't want to do policy or, or uh, you know, or PR, which was a more sort of natural progression from from where I was, I really wanted to work on product. That was real. it was tough. I got a lot of rejections, a lot of people being like, who do you think you are trying to, you know, to do this? Like, this is not for you. Uh, you know, I still have an email from a recruiter who, you know, responded to one of my many applications basically saying like, don't bother. You don't, you don't have the archetype. You didn't go to business oh. school. You didn't do consulting. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was, it was a journey. And then I got really lucky. I, I had an opportunity to join a team at what was formerly known as google.org, um, which is not the same google.org of today. But back then it was a place that was pretty unique uh, in that it was really focused on product for social impact. Um, which is very much what I wanted to do. And, and in particular, I got to work on building out their civic innovation effort, which was a great, again, natural kind of next step from where I was in uh, in the public sector. So I did that in 2012, joined and, and specifically worked on product partnerships. And it was quite the learning curve. Like I thought I knew you know, what I didn't know, but I didn't know anything, let alone what I didn't know. So you know, really quite, quite the challenge in that regard, but also just an awesome experience. So five years at Google, started off, you know, in that role, and then um, had the chance to join a team where I got to be among the first business people to come in whenever there was a crazy, ambitious idea that, you know, one of the engineers or PMs had, and, and helped try to take that to market. And those ideas turned into things like Loon and Fiber and Verily and what we now call Google X. So it's pretty, pretty awesome. This is, you know, when Google was in a much different place and smaller than it was now pre-alphabet. And that's what led me to venture, actually. I sort of stumbled into healthcare of all things. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier on, of course, that we, we come from a family of doctors, as, as, as you do. And I was not at all qualified to be the person to be like leading this effort. But 
kind of raised my hand as someone who knew how to work with highly regulated industries and uh, had an interest. And, you know, and I just dove right in and learned everything I could and helped uh, build out Google's first HIPAA compliant product, which was at way ahead of its time as a telemedicine play. And it was uh, it was interesting. I, I brought together all these disparate parts of the company that were working on healthcare and helped lay the foundation for what eventually became, you know, Google Health in bringing together these different entities, but also met these amazing entrepreneurs, people like you, um, who were, you know, starting their own businesses at the earliest stages in healthcare and, and were doing more and more effectively with far, far fewer resources than my team at Google. And and that's where I realized the real innovation was going to happen. So I wanted to be a part of that and ended up introducing some of those folks. That's kind of my thing, making intros to people I knew who happened to be in venture and realize that actually that is what I am meant to do. You know what I love about that journey? First of all, I just realized something that I've never put two and two together that you and I have in common, though we have a lot in common, which has kind of been the backbone of our friendship. We're more or less the same person, but in kind of parallel universes. But I also, so around the time that you were like, hey, I want to get into technology. I want to get into product. That's exactly when I made the shift from architecture to technology for the same exact reason. I was like, I want to be a post-development, like a post-conflict architect. Wait, I'm not impactful in Baghdad. In fact, I'm a waste of money, space, and time. People there can do it better. But you know, like technology is wild and so much can happen. And this is when we started seeing, um, as a result, frankly, I would say, Due to social media, we saw a lot of technology get a lot of focus and in in ways when people started realizing the power of data and the power of users and it started getting integrated in so many parts of our lives in a more user-friendly way, right? Whereas before that, I would say that like maybe, you know, people had like really distinct softwares in healthcare or government that weren't very user-friendly. Suddenly things started to permeate with like the accessibility of cell phones. And I think that was a realization that I had. And I'm realizing you had the realization in parallel too, where I was like, wait, hold on. This is going to be everywhere. This is really freaking cool. The opportunities are endless. What can I do with this space? Exactly, exactly. And that was almost the same calculus that kind of went into my, my early interest in healthcare. And now I'm at the intersection of those things with, with you know, doing a lot of healthcare investing you know, as a VC. So it's fun to always be on the learning journey and not try to be too calculated about like what the future holds. Yeah. And, and you know, Dina, like another thing that I want to point out about your stories, you talked about how you, got your, how you got rejected because you're like human, right? Everybody gets rejected. Something I've always admired about you is you also ask for what you want in, in places where you're like, okay, this is going to be a long shot, but I know that I can do this. I'm very capable and I'm very like self-assured. So let me go and tell these people at this other organization, I want this, but also let me show them my value. Let me start making connections. And I think that also differentiates you, but has also led to so much flexibility in your career. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, and to be honest, that's something I also look for in, in a lot of the people that I back, you know, these sort of having that chip on your shoulder to some extent, something to prove and actually proving it. And so it's not like this sense of entitlement. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. It's more like showing that value, proving it, doing the work, putting your head down and but also raising your hand. Yeah. I mean, especially as women, as minorities, definitely a skill that's required. But um, okay, so you go through this incredible career, you start as an anchor for one episode, mm -hmm. and then you work with Obama, and then you end up at Google, you become super immersed in healthcare technology. 
And what was the jump from that to being like a full-on Dina Shocker, comma, venture capitalist? <laughs> um, that was another one that was really tough. I have to say, like, that might have been the hardest pivot yet out of all these pivots. It was really, to me, felt like this secret world that I couldn't even get a window into, let alone a door. And, you know, it was something that had been sort of on my long-term radar, like, oh, this sounds like it could be a cool job, but, you know, not necessarily something I thought was in my short-term plans until I started meeting a lot of these entrepreneurs and realizing, seeing them grow their companies, realizing what it took to grow those companies, seeing sort of what my own network was and and my instincts around product and um, and business and a lot of hustling, honestly, like, again, lots of rejections, like lots and lots of people just telling me they're, they, you know, they weren't hiring, but then, you know, a few weeks later, whoa, you just hired this dude. And then you hired this other dude or, you know, and, and doing all of that also, by the way, while I was starting a family, you know, like you, like during that period of time of trying to get into venture, I ended up having two kids. In fact, I was interviewing for my first job in venture at, at GV when I was, I think I might've been six or seven months pregnant when I started. And you know, it was pretty, pretty large by the, by, by the final interviews, but was so nervous that it was hurt enough as a woman in venture, let alone as a mother and a pregnant woman. So that was, that was really a challenge for me. And that was before that summer in 2017, when a lot of things changed and, you know, there was no all raise back then, you know, which is an, an organization dedicated to, to women in venture. It, it, there wasn't as much of an infrastructure or ecosystem around supporting diversity in this particular asset class. Uh, and it was hard. And that's something about venture, right? So at least historically, diversity has been really hard to come by, not only amongst venture capitalists. I would, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume partners in venture, probably less than 10%, maybe less than 5% are women. Is that a good guess? It's very, very small. Yeah. Right. Right. And like 2% of venture goes to male and female founded team. Um, Less than 1% goes, no, it's 4% to male and female founded teams, 2% to female founded teams, less than 1% to any black CEO, which, you know, it doesn't matter which gender. So like the the numbers are rough, right? Like there's a lot of work to do. And how are you overcoming that now, especially as you look at a pipeline of deals and kind of consider founders. And, and and I've said this on a few podcasts before, but the narrative in venture is like, we invest in early stages and you're an early stage investor because we trust founders. And that's a very flawed narrative when only 1% of venture goes to black people, right? What are you saying about trusting black people or the pipeline that comes in of, of you know black founded deals? So I'm curious to hear how you're navigating this, especially because you're working in this space at a time of such immense change. Totally. And, you know, the numbers are damning and they're terrible and there's a lot of work to do. And it, it frankly got, despite the proliferation of companies and deals over the course of the, you know, the, the pandemic in the last 18 months, actually, those that the ratio has gone down. So it's not, it's not good. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, but there's also some data that gives me conviction, you know, even beyond knowing what's good for the world, right? It's not about like something that's charitable, but there is data that shows that women-led and diverse founding teams are better for the bottom line, full stop. They are better in terms of ROI for investors. They are better in terms of almost every metric that you would want to look for. And that is a superpower. That is a value, you know, like that is something that I look for in in the teams that I back. Again, not just because it's I'm a woman or because, you know, diversity is the cool or funny thing to do, but because they literally make the best founders and CEOs. And so, uh, you know, that that's one of the reasons why I'm committed to to that and also to being vocal a- about that because that's kind of 
where we start. It needs to be grounded initially in that data. And as you know, as well, you know, there's also, I have a strong thesis around investing in, in mothers. And in fact, three of my uh, portfolio company founders have had babies in the last like year to year and a half. And, and, and they've, only proven my my conviction to be true. Like you know this, you are an embodiment mm-hmm. of this. You want some you want something done, you give it to a busy mom. Like, you know, I, I don't believe that we as moms are superheroes. I don't want to like, you know, glamorize that narrative. But being a mother does give you startup superpowers or superpowers in general. And so that's 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 the difference. There's again, it's not a superhero, but the superpower of just like being able to prioritize your time because there's this inherent trade-off, right? Uh, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg in particular, you know, had, had an amazing quote where she talked about having children in law school and, and throughout her career and how it made her a better mother being, you know, having her career made her a better mother and being a mother made her better in her career. And, and I think that is true, although it is very hard, especially right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, every minute is intentional. To your point, everything is a trade off, right? Every minute at work is a minute that you're not with the kids and so on and so forth. So I don't waste time. I know you don't waste time. That's another thing we have in common. We just don't have time to waste. Yep. And so I feel I feel very similarly. And um, I'm actually like, so you know this, my, our CEO is black. I'm a woman. Our founding team is diverse. We've been together. Nobody has left. So statistically, we are against the odds. One of us should be gone. We shouldn't even be functional at this point, according <laughs> to the odds, right? Like the, the company should be gone. But alhamdulillah, things are going well and we're continuing to build this thing. And so like your thesis for me is, uh, or I guess the research that points to di- a diverse founding team um, resonates and it's something that I've personally experienced, yeah. but also being a mom. And I have to say like the moment I found out I was pregnant, I was at a WeWork in New York City and I got a phone call from Mount Auburn Hospital. I begged them. I said, I have a huge customer meeting tomorrow. Please don't call me before 5 p.m. if I'm pregnant, please. Lady calls me at 1.45, 15 minutes before I leave. And she goes, yeah, honey, you're pregnant. You're definitely pregnant. I will never forget that Boston accent. And I literally stared at this boardroom of Mendina and I started sobbing. Like there was a, a clear, we worky kind of cool back then boardroom and it was all men. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this isn't how it's going to be, is it? And I've proven like, no, right? Because I'm a woman in leadership. I made sure that's not how it wasn't. And my team is aligned with me and believes in the same things I do. But I, I do, I would agree with you that there are taboos. Women, women are scared to often, you know, show that they're pregnant during interviews or there, there are taboos against it. I would say in the startup world, which tends to have, I'd say probably like an average age of employee tends to be younger than other industries. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you compound, you know, these various different biases around, you know, minority women, uh, you know, mothers and, and all of that, it's challenging. And, and I got to say on the, on the VC side too, you know, I'm a part of a couple of informal groups that are, you know, VC moms. And it's, it's also a struggle that, that we face, especially, you know, my kids are now four and six, mashallah. And, you know, I, they're a little bit older, but friends of mine that are having kids now and thinking about, well, what does this mean in the context of, you know, whether they're raising funds and, and fundraising with LPs or whether they're trying to win deals and, you know, concerned about how founders will perceive them or, you know, whether they feel like, how can I actually take maternity leave? Because this is a job that mm-hmm. doesn't ever stop. You know, those are all challenges still, not to mention, yeah. you know, just raising kids in this environment. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it, well, it's great to see. And I think that, you know, every leader in your position, every leader in my position makes a difference. And so to kind of go back to the career story, you then ended up joining a firm, an awesome firm, working with a guy I know and admire Bilal at Lux Capital, right? 
Yes. So um, I was at GV, the artist formerly known as Google Ventures for a couple of <laughs> years and then joined Lux almost uh, a little over two years ago. And so- that Oh my was, gosh. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Crazy, what? right? Whoa. I know. Wow. I know. All right. So you joined Lux about two years ago and I, I want you to kind of talk about this because I've heard you talk about it in other public forums and I think it's important, but I've heard you talk about imposter syndrome a little bit and you not necessarily talking about Lux's thesis and your background in service, right? So I'd love to hear your comments on kind of how you dealt with that and, and what exactly I'm talking about. <laughs> totally. I mean, I've, I felt, that I guess what I later learned was called imposter syndrome throughout these various different pivot points in my career. And, you know, if it, whether it was being at state and trying to get into a product role or, 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 you know, going from that background into the venture. And then, you know, even when I think there are a couple of things that I would highlight around that when joining, you know, and, and when deciding where I wanted to go, one of the things that was really important to me was being at a firm and in a partnership where the sort of intersectionality of my identity, not just on my ethnic or, or, you know, heritage or my gender, but actually like the varied experiences I've also had in my career, we're not only, we're not seen as like irrelevant or just random points on, you know, on a chart, but actually very critical to the job that I do. Cause I knew that was the case, but I found myself in a lot of these conversations with other firms like either ignoring those, you know, those, those points in my career, glossing over them, really just focusing on what I felt, you know, thought they would think is relevant. But one of the reasons I knew that Lux was going to be a fit for me is because I didn't need to sell that. I didn't need to make that case. They saw that their portfolio, our portfolio is reflective of that, whether it's the companies that we invest in, in civic tech and, you know, related to that experience, the, the healthcare work that I've done. Um, and so that's something where I really felt like I could lean into that. But I had imposter syndrome also around leaning into what has become, you know, a strong area of interest for me, which is health tech. And that's where most of my investing has been and where I finally am comfortable owning the fact that that's, you know, where a lot of my um, network and, and expertise is in. But, you know, our parents would probably, or our dads at least, would find it hilarious, right? That that, that, that is the case <laughs> given like, you know, they they are the practitioners. They are the ones who went to medical school and are saving lives. And, and it's absolutely true. And, and, you know, I'm not going to be writing prescriptions for, for anyone or, you know, making complex diagnoses. But when it comes to innovation in the sector, I've seen it. I've been a part of building it at Google. I've been a part of, you know, companies and helping them grow at, at, at GV and now at Lux. And, and, I just, it took a lot for me to actually lean into that and not feel like, who was I to be doing this? I didn't have an MD or a PhD, but now I, I own it and, and I love it. It's fun. And you know, the thing about venture is, I mean, as a founder, you learn quickly that your average relationship with your VC is longer than the average marriage in the United States, right? It's like seven to 10 years. I think the average marriage is nine. This isn't even a joke. It's reality. And so what that means as a venture capitalist is you don't really see the benefits or whether or not your pattern recognition and decision-making skills are good until a few years in, really, mm -hmm. right? You start getting data points like a little bit further in. So at some point you're like, okay, well, this is my portfolio. So clearly I'm really freaking smart and connected and know how to do this. But for those first two years, which I'm assuming you're over the hump now or a few years, you don't have that. You have to be able to back your ability to think through things, find the right deals and find the right people. And then you have to give those deals the time to flourish and support the founders through their journey and so on and so forth. 
It's true. I mean, it's a very different kind of model and feedback loop than when you're on the operating side. And I wouldn't say I'm over that hump. It takes, you know, oftentimes it takes five to seven plus years before you can really know, like, if get a few exits, it. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. exits and seeing companies through, of course, it's different depending on what stage you're investing in. So I don't know if I'm any good at this yet. Like, you know, I know that like I have great relationships with my founders and, you know, and I'm enjoying it. And there's a lot of things that I can show in terms of deals that I've helped, you know, close on the commercial side, et cetera. But no, I don't, I don't have that track record yet. And I won't for a while. It's just something you have to kind of come to grips with in this industry. Right. But you know, like I think that you've proven, proven yourself in other ways. And I saw a milestone for one of the companies you back becoming a unicorn or you backing it made it a unicorn or something along those lines, which is awesome, right? Like that is a sign of success. It is not easy to raise a lot of money. Yeah, I'm very proud of that company. We we just um, announced for those that are listening, we just announced our uh, co-lead in a company called Maven Clinic, which is the category leader in women's and family health. So it's very you know very much a thesis that is near and dear to my heart. And this is my third investment in the women's health space. So also one where I've been spending a lot of time. Um, so just could not be more more proud of Kate, the founder, and and the fact that she also you know, is a, a mother of three, including, a, you know, a small infant that she gave birth to via emergency C-section over the course of, you know, the last few months as I was getting to know her. So it's pretty oh. remarkable. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that there is anything in the women's health space that is being valued that much in technology, because as a woman and as somebody who's had a baby, like it sucks. It really sucks. Mm-hmm. Pumping sucks. Being pregnant sucks. The glucose test sucks. Like there yeah. just isn't yet. Like, you know, if you look at studies about any sort of medication that helps men for things that are, you know, even things that are developed much quicker for the other gender. But yeah. somehow for us, um, it, it takes a lot longer. It's true. It's true. I mean, there was a, that, the recent acquisition of, uh, of a modern fertility by, um, by Roe that a lot of people were pointing to. And, I, and I'm a big fan of both of those founding teams. And uh, you know, I think it was a great outcome for a lot of the early investors there. But uh, you know, Roe started off as a men's health company, and now they're doing a lot more than that. And the founder, Zach, has been very vocal about how he believes the women's health category is huge, and they're really doubling down there. But, you know, perhaps there's a future where it's the women's health company that's acquiring the men's health company. And and I think, you know, Maven is going to be at the forefront of that. Well, I look forward to it. And I look forward to a time when I don't have to talk about how much it sucks to be pregnant because the system <laughs> is not working in your favor. And you you had anecdotes too, like me, where I am like my own advocate as I'm pregnant. And I go to a very good hospital as you did, but there are so many different bodies of research around gestational diabetes, something you and I both have had to deal with. And like we've had to educate ourselves because there isn't even necessarily a synonymous kind of body of research that every hospital would agree with. And that's just one part of being pregnant, which is one small part of some women's lives, right? Absolutely. And and the, and it is much, you know, the problem is even more pronounced in, uh, especially in the black maternal health crisis. It is just unbelievable how little progress has been made toward, you know, bridging the, the inequities in healthcare. And in fact, there was just a New York Times article the other day, maybe yesterday, actually, or the day before, um, that was referring to this set of studies in JAMA around the, the last 20 years in healthcare and how little has been done. Uh, and, and I think mater- maternal health is one of those areas where, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris called or called the current situation a black maternal health crisis. And it really is. Mm-hmm. And not just in terms of maternal outcomes, pediatric outcomes mm-hmm. issues that contribute to fertility and endometriosis and, and, and more. There's life expectancy. There's a very big life expectancy gap in like 2021, right? Yes. 
And then on the flip side, it's funny, this is totally unrelated, but I was reading, an, I mean, it's related, but not in, in the context of this discussion necessarily. But I was reading an article yesterday about how effectively, like any sort of removing children from homes um, or any sort of cases with ACS have kind of been flipped on their heads throughout the pandemic and kind of how it's been shifted based on Black people not getting reported as much because they don't go to the pediatrician and they don't go to school where they're reported all the time. But also it talked about how I, I think 40 something percent of Black kids get a visit from ACS at some point in their lives, like one in every two. It's unbelievable. But the abuse, like if you look at various communities, the abuse is not increased in black communities. It's the same in white communities, right? Like it, that just really, especially as a mom, that devastated the heck out of me. But um, yes, I look forward to you financing many things that can advance any sort of equities um, amongst many communities and our black community. Thank you. I, I'm, you know, I'm looking for those companies out there. And so any entrepreneurs who are building in that space toward value-based care, toward health equity and health justice, there's a huge opportunity there. I'm so excited by all the innovation around digital health. And I think the next wave of it needs to be focused on uh, the communities that, that need it most. And, and the pandemic has highlighted that uh, in a lot of ways in terms of its outsized impact on on women, on especially on you know Black and Latinx women and, and in general on communities of color. Yeah. And, and, you know, that actually takes me to my next question. Great segue. How does somebody raise money from you? Well, it's uh, it's it's a, it's a process of getting to know, you know, me and the team. I, I think I've publicly talked about this, but, you know, I have been the one doing cold outreach in the past and I have a lot of respect for that kind of hustle. But I also know now being on the on the receiving end of that, that, you know, that there is a, a, a more effective way to do it. And, and I like to even approach the, the situation on the other end myself. I'm often doing a lot of outreach to founders. It's not, you know, a lot of people think venture is this is this job where you kind of sit back and put up your feet and let people come to you. It's actually not. Venture capital is 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 a lot of sales. Like you mm -hmm. you are you are advocating to get into the, those deals, the best deals, and it's very much a relationship building and a symbiotic process. So it's not just about kind of people getting in touch with me. It's also like me finding them. And so, you know, um, that's a process that that happens over time. But I, I appreciate those who, who who do that outreach, whether it's on, you know, Twitter or, or, or otherwise. And I look forward to learning more about some of these awesome opportunities that are that are starting up these days. And what would the advice be that you would give to somebody? I mean, it's been a long time and I don't know how much the industry has changed since like we were, you know, initially putting together a prototype. But if somebody literally today is like, okay, I have this great idea, you can do it in a number of ways, right? You can apply to an accelerator, put something together, test it in the market, then find an investor. What do you find is the most common for early stage specifically? Like what does a very capable and competent pitch include? Yeah. So I think the ability to articulate your pitch in a really pithy, you know, intelligible way is just such a, it's such an important skill. It's not just about your ability to fundraise. It's a skill that will, that will enable you down the road to recruit. It will enable you to sell, you know, whether you're selling to your, your end user as a consumer or, or an enterprise customer. So you know, I've seen some amazing, amazing, uh, you know, investor memos that people are sharing these days, like via Notion. You know, I love looms. I think looms are awesome. Like, being, yeah, I know you do. <laughs> being respectful of, you know, someone's time on both ends. Like, you know, I, I shouldn't feel entitled for someone to take a meeting with me just because I send them like a one line email. And so, you know, folks who, um, who do that and are able to, to do it in like 
in a matter of 30 seconds or a minute and, and make sure that there is a fit before having a conversation and just knowing as you and I do, uh, and as all moms um, and, and many parents do that, the time is everything and you want to make sure you're using your time effectively as a founder and also as, as a VC. And so I don't, I don't want to waste someone's time if it's not something that I'm, you know, particularly, you know, interested in investing in. Um, and, and the founder should also like seek out the VCs who, you know, are specifically, you know, looking into the, their, their sector and their space. That makes sense. I mean, at first, really, if you were to take a step back, like the stage that you're describing is kind of a discovery stage, right? Where it's like, are you even a fit? Can I even help you as a VC? What I'm saying is I will buy a piece of your company, but I will also in exchange help you grow that company, right? So then after that discovery stage becomes a stage of really building the case. And that's when it, that's when the founder has to shine and say, yeah, let me tell you why. And my understanding is that actually with the pandemic, term sheets are everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> there's been no, there's been no shortage of funding. So how do you work with your peers? I mean, what is the percentage of deals that you would say comes in from friends versus you doing cold outreach versus your personal network? Yeah. So, you know, having that peer community of investors is, uh, is important, but you know, for me, because I didn't grow up in this industry, like there, it's, it's a very different dynamic than, you know, friends of mine that I might've gone to school with that either went straight into venture or have been doing it for like 10 plus years. I have discovered some incredible friends through, you know, who are also investors, especially women and, and in many cases, moms as well. And so there's there's a trust building that happens. Venture is not a monolith. So there are folks, you know, who are angels or doing syndicates at the much earlier stages and there are growth investors. And so being able to like collaborate and kind of know who's who, and then also getting, you know, references and referrals from your founders, like you hear it, you know, it's a small world and people talk. And so if, if there's a bad behavior that's happening from a VC to a founder, like those reputations matter. And it's not always just about like, you know, writing checks and seeing all this up into the right growth. Like there are times in the business that are not going to be great. And that's part of your role as an investor and board member is to be able to help navigate through that and also, you know, have those tough conversations when you have to. And so having that relationship, you know, that foundation set is just really, really important. Yeah, I can understand why that would be the case. And it's funny because I've gotten many emails from investors who are like, do you know companies? I've gotten many cold emails from investors that are like, hey, let me take you to lunch. So yeah. it's funny like hearing about things on the flip side. And you're right, like ultimately venture, there's a big sales role in venture. And then once a deal is closed, you're about kind of making sure that the value that you and the founder have decided upon is reality. Because I think what people don't realize is when you say something is a unicorn, that means we project the value to be a billion dollars after this injection of money. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is these are the steps that need to go into place for this to become reality, right? And often, actually, it's not uncommon for later stage funding for the ARR to be like, I don't know, for the value to be four to 10 times the ARR. Like that's not uncommon, right? I mean, I've seen 40 times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hashtag we work back to let's take it to the beginning of this podcast, right? You know, it, it's it's definitely an interesting time. Um, and it's not always going to be like this. And it hasn't always been like this. So, you know, that's something to be aware of. But yeah, there's a lot of capital out there. There's also a lot of amazing, you know, founding teams and entrepreneurs out there. And so, it, you know, it, it's also an exciting time. But, you know, I don't know how how long we will be in this state. And so being able to prepare companies for all situations is something that we as investors really need to do. Yeah. And Dina, when you're writing your, you know, autobiography in however many years, how do you want this to all end up? 
<laughs> Gosh. Um, I'm going to end on an easy note. I know. Well, you know, just like when I was starting off, like I, you know, I remember somebody asking me a year or two out of school, like what my 10 year plan was. And, I, you know, I was used to being around people who had that, but I didn't have that back then. I think it's a little bit different now because that sort of discovery journey over time in retrospect is kind of what led me to where I am now. And this is very much the type of career that, you know, I see myself in for a long time and that I love. And, and frankly, it's because I, you know, I, I get to learn, like, it's my job to learn about new industries and work with like, there's a lot about it that I love, even though it is also the hardest I've ever worked in my entire life, you know, so I, I, I hope that I can be a part of, you know, a small part in the journey of uh, helping grow companies that are ultimately it sounds cheesy, but making the world, uh, you know, a, a better place. And whether that's through improving health outcomes and population health, whether it's through uh, diagnostics to, you know, detect diseases earlier, therapeutics to, to treat them, and, and ultimately, you know, funding more, more underrepresented founders as well, who are creating value for themselves and, and for their families and the next generation of, of wealth. And I hope that it will ultimately help to bridge a lot of these inequities. You know, it's funny, you say you didn't have a 10-year plan, but you started this podcast talking about your commitment to impact and you kind of made a false dichotomy, which you realized later in life about being rich or being impactful effectively. And you're ending this podcast saying your 10-year plan is impact, right? So so like actually your like 10, 20, and 50-year plan seems to be pretty aligned at the high level. You know, it's it's interesting because you know my brother um, Omar and, and he and I um, were only a year apart, and he and believe it or not, we went. To, well, you know this, but we went to grad school together. Actually, um, we did the same master's program. He ended up going, you know, down a, a very different path, and now he's a human rights lawyer, and I'm a VC. And it, on paper, it literally like looks like our careers couldn't be more <laughs> different. But both of us really shared this, you know, desire toward impact. And I think there's no one way to do it. I'm not saying that yeah, everyone. Should should go be a VC because that's how you can make the world a better place. Like, you know, absolutely not necessarily true. As I started off saying, like, whether you're a doctor working on the research side to you know, find a cure for cancer or, you know, working in rural communities, like literally helping people with their everyday health challenges, like that's incredibly impactful. If you're on the nonprofit side, that's impactful. You know, there's so much that you can do. And so it's, it's sort of a combination of like, not just like, hey, how can I make the world better? But also like, what is my unique way to do it? And I'm not going to be the one on the airplane that's saving someone's life. I wish, you know, I will take some CPR classes and hopefully I can do that. But, you know, but that's not that's not me. I'm not going to be the one reporting on human rights abuses uh, on the ground. And I'm so proud of my brother and the amazing work that he's doing. And I'm not going to be the one who, you know, is necessarily doing some of the many other things that one can do towards impact. But this is this is what I love to do and what I'm good at. And I hope that it can have some impact in the future. I look forward to it. I can't wait to keep up with it. I've loved our parallel lives so far. Mm -hmm. And for those who are not as lucky to live in a parallel universe, how can people find you? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dina Shacker and follow me and DM me there. My DMs are open and any friend of Layla's is a friend of mine. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dina. Thank you. 